Hello, I'm Zeb Newirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for people who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, uh, our focus today is going to be on the administration strategy for national healthcare policy. This is uh, an unusual podcast for a number of reasons. Uh, for starters, uh, this is the first time we've posted during a presidential election. I'm recording this podcast early Thursday morning. It's November 5th, two days after the election day. And although one candidate is leading in the vote and in the electoral vote, the race is still too close to be called. Second, I'm going to take this opportunity to share my thoughts directly with you in this episode, as opposed to the regular expert guest interview. And this is an unusual episode, and I'm going to address the POTUS question that I've asked every one of my guests this year. And this is the only question I'm going to deal with today. For those of you who have been listening to the podcast series this year, you'll immediately recognize the question, but I'm now directing it at myself. So if it sounds like I'm talking to myself, I am but it's intentional. I'm going to get into character and respond as if I'm in the situation we're about to set up, call it dramatic license. And while I'm going to attempt to inject some dramatic levity into the podcast, these are clearly serious issues. And uh, I know you're going to hear the sincere passion in my voice in a moment. You know, one last comment before we jump into the Oval Office scene. I posted an interview with Dr. Don Berwick about a month ago. He was sharing a story about how he had just been asked to write a piece this summer for JAMA and was asked to predict or depict the post-COVID-19 situation. He thought about it for a while and then wrote back to the editor saying that he thought it was far less important to try to predict the future and far more important to shape the future. And the way you do that is through the choices you make. So he did actually write an article in JAMA. In fact, he wrote a couple this past uh, summer about the choices we should make in the post-COVID-19 era about healthcare in our country. Now, Dr. Berwick is an amazing intellect and leader in so many ways, and I really admire that reframe of the article, and I think he's spot on. He wrote in that article that fate will not determine the new normal, but instead our choices will. And I completely agree with Dr. Berwick. Relegating a new normal or the future of American healthcare to fate and circumstance is a cop-out. We will create the new normal with the decisions we make. And that's why I'm going to focus this episode on the choices I believe our administration should be making in healthcare. I also believe that our choices are determined by how we frame the situation. That's why reframing healthcare is so critical. If we continue to view healthcare with the same perspective or same lens, we will continue to make similar choices and decisions. If we can adopt, however, new frameworks, new ways to understand healthcare, we can make new and different and better choices. I was recently interviewing Tony Slonim, Dr. Slonim, the amazing CEO of renowned healthcare in Nevada who is not only a pediatric ICU doctor, but also has a PhD in public health. I've had the the great fortune of speaking with Dr. Slanum many, many times. And in our discussion uh, just uh, last week, he pointed out to me that what was needed 
now wasn't just one new reframe, but multiple frames of reference. He pointed out that any single framework might be good, but was incomplete and would lead to incomplete choices and decisions. So it's not just that we need to reframe healthcare. We need to reframe healthcare from multiple new frameworks. I can't agree more. And um, so you'll see how I've woven both Dr. Berwick's and Dr. Slonham's discussions with me into the conversation today. So without further ado, let's, let's drop into the scene. Uh, here is the situation that I'm about to set up. Dr. Neuwirth, it's Thursday, January 21st, 2021, the day after inauguration of the President of the United States, and you find yourself in the Oval Office sitting on the opposite couch from POTUS and the Vice President. As an important aside, you are socially distanced and you are all wearing masks. POTUS has asked for your opinion, your thoughts, suggestions, your recommendations on what this administration should be focusing on in regard to healthcare policy and policy deployment over the next four years. You've been allotted 20 to 30 minutes. Both POTUS and the VP have listened to your podcast and they've recently read your book on reframing healthcare. They believe that we need to reframe healthcare in the U.S., and they've turned to you. What are you going to say to them? First, let me say to both of you, congratulations. We, the people, have voted, and we've placed our trust in your leadership. God bless you, and God bless our country. To begin, COVID-19 is the most obvious, immediate, and critically urgent issue we must address. I'm not going to make any specific recommendations about the pandemic, other than to say that we have brilliant and experienced public health, infectious disease, and epidemiology experts, and we need to listen to their insights and follow their recommendations. It seems sort of obvious, but it hasn't been that way. Now, in addition to being a catastrophic pandemic, COVID-19 has also served to reveal and magnify some of the long-standing fundamental flaws in our healthcare system. It has showcased the vulnerabilities and unsustainabilities in our healthcare system. It has shown us how misaligned, maladapted, outdated, and unethical the healthcare system in our country is. And please, let me be clear, I'm not talking about the professionals, staff, the organizations within this larger so-called system. I'm talking about the system itself. Over the past three and a half years, I've conducted in-depth interviews with well over 200 healthcare leaders entrepreneurs, and experts, and listen to many, many more. Not one of them has argued, not one has argued that the current approach we have in healthcare delivery in this country is acceptable or sustainable. In fact, just this past spring, I posted nearly 20 in-depth interviews asking these national healthcare leaders how the pandemic has served as a potential catalyst for change. What I heard over and over again was the reference to Churchill's famous quote, never waste a good crisis. And in this case, it would be tragic, tragic if we wasted this crisis, which is both a signal and a catalyst for change in healthcare. It would be tragic if we didn't learn the lessons the pandemic has taught us and if we didn't take advantage of the moment and the momentum to create transformative change in American healthcare. I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. President, you say that you're you're familiar with the Churchill quote, and you agree that the system needs a major overhaul, but you're, you want to shift to action to identify the large problems and, and some concrete next steps. 
Yes, sir. I'll limit my recommendation to five major points and some tangible next steps. Sir, I've heard it said that all policy begins with principles. So I'm going to lay out some principles or mandates quickly and then go back and touch upon each one. And here are the five I'd like to discuss with you. Principle number one, we must continue to ensure universal coverage and basic health care for all Americans. Principle number two, we must eliminate disparities and inequities in American health care and health outcomes, especially along racial lines. Principle number three, we must reframe healthcare from the traditional limited model of clinical medicine to an expanded model that includes the social determinants of health. Principle number four, we must redesign the way we deliver healthcare services. We must transform how care is actually delivered between providers and patients, the core care model itself. We can do everything else but if we don't address this where the rubber meets the road, we will not succeed in improving the health of our nation. Insurance and coverage is critically important, but it's still not health care. Principle number five, we must shift from the piecemeal fee-for-service payment and compensation model to a value-based payment that does not place barriers to achieving better health care and better health. For Americans. Let me touch upon each one of these, Mr. President. Principle number one, we must continue to ensure universal coverage and basic health care. At this point in time, over 30 million people, 30 million Americans are currently uninsured. That's, that's nearly 10% of the population in our country. And in the wake of the pandemic, with unemployment rising, with the possibility of the ACA being repealed, those numbers could go up significantly. So in terms of some next steps, it's clear that the ACA must be maintained. And by the way, this is not a political or partisan perspective. As you know, the ACA, so-called Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, was actually based and built upon Mitt Romney's, the governor of Massachusetts at the time, Mitt Romney's care in Massachusetts. It was called Romney Care. And Mitt Romney is a Republican. The ACA is a bipartisan act, and it works. Massachusetts achieved less than 5% uninsured rate, which is a far cry from where we are now in this country. So the individual mandate, that part of the ACA, that is absolutely necessary. We require people to have car insurance if they drive. We require people to have home insurance if they own a home. We need to require people also to have health insurance if they have a body. And in large part, that's because the consequences impact not just themselves, but their families and everyone else. Healthcare coverage is a responsibility we owe to our fellow citizens. Now, another part of the ACA is that people cannot be discriminated against because of a pre-existing condition. Everyone could relate to that. Um, it's tragic. It's tragic. Well over 100,000 people who are having trouble, difficulty getting, I think it was, it was 150,000 or more, getting healthcare coverage because of pre-existing conditions. That has to change. We, we must allow the ACA to exist for that reason as well. And of course, Medicaid must be expanded to all states, or we might just consider doing something that I heard Dr. Zeke Emanuel mention in our interview, which is maybe we begin to administer Medicaid from the federal level, administer it as a federally uh, administered program, similar to Medicare. Uh, it might make it more efficient uh, and uh, lower costs. 
I want to add here that we need to increase access to primary care, and we need to do that primarily by increasing the number of primary care providers we have in this country, increase the affordability and convenient access that people have to primary care. We know from the research literature that the health of communities is correlated with access to primary care. We have research from within the United States that substantiates this, and we see many positive examples of it around the globe in other developed nations who have better health outcomes at a lower cost, and they achieve that through access to primary care. The problem in this country is that we have a deficit already of primary care physicians, along with a severe deficit of geriatricians and mental health professionals, all of which I would consider at this point primary care. The estimates predict a rapidly growing shortage of primary care physicians that will total in the tens of thousands, perhaps more than that. It's a bad situation that's getting worse. And if we don't do something about it now, Mr. President, we will find ourselves in a very precarious situation. I can actually share with you a real-life story of a consequence of this. And this is, by the way, is not unusual. My own father was admitted a few months ago to a hospital for a life-threatening situation. He recovered, thank God, and was discharged. When he and the care managers who were working with him tried to schedule a primary care appointment with the doctor he had already seen, so this was his primary care doctor, they couldn't get the appointment for something like four or five weeks, which, by the way, is normal across the country. He did, however, in the meantime, see two or three specialists. The problem was that because he had not seen his primary care physician, no one was watching the overall picture and putting it together. No one was treating him as a whole person. The specialists, look, they were doing their job. They were focusing on the specific part of his anatomy, his heart or his kidney, but no one was looking at him as a whole person, as a whole patient. So in that four or five week time that he was not able to get to the primary care physician, my father became ill again and he nearly died. He ended up in the hospital for a second time within one month. His near-death experience and that hospitalization and all of the trauma and the attendant costs could have been prevented had he been able to see a competent and caring primary care provider. But for the grace of God, my father is still alive. And by the way, my father lives right outside one of the largest metropolitan centers in the world. So this is not a rural healthcare problem. There are doctors, many, many doctors around in his town. There are just not enough primary care physicians and not enough access to primary care. So Mr. President, in terms of the next step, in, in, in addition to maintaining the ACA, and the mandates within the ACA, I would suggest that you assign a task force to address the issue of provider capacity. Our nation depends on that. And I would focus particularly on primary care and mental health and geriatrics. I am unaware of any national effort dealing with this national crisis. We need more primary care. We need access to mental health professionals. At this point in time, only 5% of the total Healthcare costs in the U.S. are spent on primary care, only 5%. Other developed nations spend twice as much as we do on primary care. And we see that their health outcomes are far superior to ours, and their healthcare costs are far less. Let me move on to principle number two. This is so important. It may be the most important principle. We must eliminate the disparities and inequities in healthcare and health outcomes, especially along racial lines. The prevalence of chronic disease in our country is far greater in people of color. Black Americans are twice as likely to have diabetes or high blood pressure than white Americans. And if they have 
those chronic diseases, their outcomes are far worse than white Americans. This is not, not a genetic predisposition. This is a predisposition of the approach our healthcare system has taken. And I'm not talking about the individuals, the professionals or staff in the system, not at all. What we need to understand that this is a systemic problem and we need to do something about it. Black people and Latinx people get treated differently than white people. They have less preventive care, they have less diagnostic testing, and the outcomes of care are different. Many factors are at play here. It's not a simple, straightforward issue, but those are the facts. For example, a black woman is far more likely to die from childbirth than a white woman. The statistics show that infant mortality and maternal mortality is two to four times greater in black Americans than white Americans. And by the way, this number, this statistic, this health outcome has literally not changed since the time of the Civil War. The difference in life expectancy in our great cities between people of color and white people can literally be up to 20 years. 20 years. Your zip code, they say, is a better predictor of how long you will live in this country than your genetic code. This is a function, again, directly of the disparities in our healthcare system especially along racial lines and along lines of socioeconomic status. So in terms of solutions, first, we need to recognize and address the social determinants of health. And I'm going to cover that in the next principle. But second, we need to set up very, very concrete programs, specific programs to identify, measure, and eliminate the disparities and inequities in healthcare delivery and health outcomes. One way I would suggest we begin this is that we mandate that every payer, including Medicare, be required to measure and report all of the clinical quality metrics broken out by race. So if we're looking at the so-called HEDIS metrics, these are the standard quality and experience metrics that every insurance company is required to measure and report on. All providers are required to measure and report on. It determines payment. We should require that these HEDIS metrics be measured and reported not only in, by total populations, but broken down by racial lines so we can compare the treatment and outcomes for white people, black people, Latinx people, Asian people. And let's measure that for a couple of years to get a baseline, maybe one or two years. And then let's begin to attach monetary incentives to the performance of healthcare and health outcomes along racial lines. This is what we do for quality scores now. They're gates. And that's what we should attach. So we can start this way, but the point is within the next five to seven years, we should be at a place where we are not paying for healthcare that continues to generate and propagate disparities in healthcare delivery. Another way to eliminate the disparities and inequities has to do with the network of community clinics we have across the country. I've spent the last few months uh, studying community clinics uh, across the country and also where I work. The current community clinic model is a legacy antiquated approach that does not work. Despite having incredibly mission-driven and dedicated providers and staff, and, and these folks work passionately to deliver care to vulnerable populations in our communities, the point is we must reform and transform these community clinics so that they deliver care that makes sense to the communities, contextual care that accounts for the actual issues people are dealing with and struggling with in their effort to lead healthy, meaningful, happy lives. We have to build a care model that is based on what matters to you medicine. Let me say that again. We have to build a care model that is based on what matters to you medicine rather than what's the matter with you medicine. And I would suggest that you task 
the CMMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, to set up pilot programs that test out really new and different models of care in community clinics. There is some real expertise across the country in this domain. Some centers are achieving better outcomes, much better outcomes. But the point here is to develop a care approach that is contextual, connected, convenient, affordable, one that addresses the health-related needs of vulnerable populations. And I'll get back to the care model in, in, a, in a few moments, Mr. President. Let me move on to principle number three because it's connected to principle number two and to the issue of inequities and, and disparities in health care and, and health outcomes. Principle number three, we must reframe healthcare from the traditional model of clinical medicine to an expanded model that includes the social determinants of health. In this country, 40 million people go hungry. In this country, 40 million people are homeless. Over 50% of elderly people in our country experience social isolation, which can be extremely debilitating. Over 60,000 people each year in our country die from opioid overdoses. And approximately, I believe, the same number commit suicide. There's a term in the literature that I came across. It's called deaths of despair. Deaths of despair. And this attempts to describe and depict the startling rise and the number of deaths in this country that are due to substance abuse and mental health issues. The truth is we are witnessing an epidemic. And, and these are young people. These are young people who are dying. People in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. These are Americans in what should be the prime of their life. This is our next generation that is being cut down. We now understand from years of research that healthcare is determined largely by the so-called social determinants of health, SDOH. And what is meant by this is issues like education, employment, food security, safe housing, safe neighborhoods, easily accessible and affordable transportation, upward social mobility, mental health, substance abuse, all of these factors which fall outside of the traditional bounds of healthcare and healthcare delivery. These factors actually have a much larger impact on health outcomes than the traditional clinical medical factors and interventions. It's startling, a much larger impact. And I mean that these social determinants of health contribute somewhere between 40 to 60% of the outcomes of health are determined by these factors, whereas traditional medical interventions like medications and surgeries contribute about 10 to 20% of the impact and health outcomes. So social determinants of health, Mr. President, is the new healthcare. What we need to do is to reframe healthcare in our country from this perspective, from multiple lenses of the social determinants of health. And in order to deploy this reframe, we must adopt an expanded collaborative approach I'll say that again, we must adopt an expanded collaborative approach to healthcare because the American healthcare dilemma will not be solved from within the confines of the medical establishment and clinical medicine. In order to actually accomplish this policy, we must reorganize. Actually, Mr. President, you must reorganize your approach at the cabinet level. There are 15 cabinet secretaries, as I understand, and others who have the status of cabinet members. What I would suggest you do is organize a president's health collaborative. In that collaborative, I would include the Secretary of Health and Human Services, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, the Secretary of Labor, the Secretary of Education, the Secretary of Transportation, the Secretary of the Justice Department, the Secretary of Veteran Affairs, 
the lead administrator from the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, the lead administrator from the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, the lead administrator from the Council of Economic Advisors, and the lead administrator from the Office of Science and Technology and the ONC. You need to have people in there who have technical digital expertise, and it's critically important to have people in this committee who have actual expertise and experience in public health, epidemiology, health policy, and health economics. Mr. President, I would ask your vice president to be in charge of this president's health collaborative. I'm sorry, Mr. President, you're wondering why we need all that high level, high power uh, cabinet members and authority at the table. Well, Mr. President, there are a number of reasons I would recommend uh, we need all of these cabinet leaders at the table. First, we will need highly strategic leaders and thinkers, leaders who have the authority to redirect strategy, tactics, and resources. Another reason for getting this high-powered group together is that they will begin to reorient, to reframe one another, and begin thinking about healthcare from multiple perspectives, multiple points of view, multiple lenses. They must form a new way of thinking and a new way of working together. And if they haven't been on this reframe journey together, they will be far less inclined to make the significant changes in how they redirect their resources. I realize, Mr. President, it's a big ask, but one-fifth of the United States economy is worth it. To say nothing about the tens of millions of lives we will improve and the tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives we will save with this collaborative effort. A final reason why this group is important is that in order for us to impact the, the social determinants of health, to transform the health of America, we will need to reform and transform the judicial system, the education system, the employment system, the housing and urban development system, the transportation system, and so on. I, I'm not going to go into any detail about this, Mr. President, but it's not just about reframing healthcare, HHS, or, or CMS, or the CDC, or NIH. It's about reframing all those other departments and their mindset and their actions for the purpose of improving the health of our nation. So the assignment for this multi-department, multidisciplinary task force would be to create a set of initiatives that focus on eliminating the disparities and inequities in healthcare through creating an expanded social determinants of health approach to healthcare delivery. Mr. President, this is the moonshot mission for our country at this point in time. The moonshot is reversing the epidemic of chronic disease in our country, in particular in our vulnerable populations and communities. The moonshot is rebuilding and restoring the trust that has been lost in our healthcare system again, and especially in communities of color and in our most vulnerable populations. And just like the space moonshot mission required many different perspectives, many different fields to launch that rocket and deliver a man safely to the moon, this will require all of the knowledge, skill, and resources of various departments working closely together, reframing one another, aligned around a single mission and a single set of objectives and metrics. It will transform healthcare from a clinical care model to something else. I'm not even sure what to call it at this moment. The moonshot may take a decade. But by the end of that time, it should be plain to see success must be defined at the outset and be highly quantifiable and measurable. It must be obvious that we have landed the mission and achieved the goals we set out to. Mr. President, this would be the greatest humanitarian mission of our time. It would be unprecedented and it would be a legacy for your administration, our government and our nation, and quite honestly, the world. Principle number four, and I'll move a, a bit more quickly through these last couple. 
we must make a change in the actual way we deliver healthcare. We must reframe and reform care delivery itself. What happens at the front line of care, those interactions between providers and patients, the bottom line is we need to shift from a sick care model to a health care model to an actual health model. It's important to understand that when it comes to preventive care and chronic disease management, the current care model produces results that are mediocre at best. And quite honestly, they're unacceptable at this point in time. Sir, what do I mean by that? Uh, Mr. President, do I, have any, do I have any evidence to back up that claim? Yes, sir. R right now, uh, where we are after decades, after decades of amazing science and research, uh, medications, technology that is, is almost futuristic, even with all of that, at this point in time, over 70% of Americans over the age of 65 have a chronic condition. About 50%, one out of every two, have two or more chronic conditions. Over a third of American adults, over a third of American adults have a chronic condition. One in 10 Americans has diabetes, and this number is continuing to rise. Nearly one out of every three Americans has high blood pressure. Four in 10 Americans are obese. These are not insignificant diseases. They pose a major threat to individuals and families who have them. Americans who go untreated for their blood pressure or diabetes or heart failure or depression will end up sicker and sicker. The consequences, of course, are strokes and heart attacks, cancers, frequent admissions to hospitals. Much of this can be prevented, which again reduces pain and suffering and also saves tremendous costs. And sir, if you would ask, what's our, our ability to manage these chronic diseases? The answer is, again, it's poor. It's mediocre at best. Hypertension is controlled maybe half the time amongst people who have it. Diabetes, about the same. We can do much better, and we must do much better. But the only way is if we change our approach to actual care delivery at the front line of care. We must change from a purely clinical medical model to a contextual model that addresses the overall needs of individuals, not just their medical needs, but the needs that are related to their ability to engage in their own health care. Again, a few moments ago, I talked about shifting the care model to a what matters to you model. And again, we need to rebuild our care teams. We need to have new expertise. Care teams should include community health workers and case managers. In vulnerable populations, you're going to need legal aid. Uh, and so we really, it depends, of course, on the population you're serving, but you need to contextualize care. We must shift, again, we just talked about chronic disease. We must shift from an episodic, intermittent, reactive model of chronic disease management to a more connected, continuous, and proactive model. The care of people with high blood pressure, diabetes, heart failure, asthma, depression, kidney disease cannot be managed in 10 to 15 minute appointments that are spaced months apart with little or no communication in between. This is a ludicrous legacy model of healthcare delivery. The current technology we have, the digital and communication technology, which by the way, we use these technologies in all other industries. It's part of our daily lives. Those technologies can be applied today to healthcare to allow patients and providers to be in contact literally 24 seven. The current technology allows for software programs that can literally automatically detect changes in worsening conditions that can customize and personalize care. And again, I'm not talking about some futuristic technology or some future artificial intelligence. This is happening now in other industries. In fact, it's happening in healthcare and it should be happening all over the place. And far from increasing costs, Mr. President, it will actually lower the cost of healthcare and it will save lives and it will produce a, a consumer experience 
a patient experience that is far better than the current patient experience. And it'll make it so much easier for providers and their teams to deliver care. Of course, the corollary here, Mr. President, and this is the next step, is that CMS must continue to change the regulations rapidly to allow payment for digital care and virtually enable care. We must allow for payment of care across state lines. We must allow for team-based care that is more connected. I would suggest that you ask your Secretary of Health and Human Services working with CMS and CMMI to also continue to release these regulations, to deploy them that allow for these virtual and digital care models that pay for remote patient monitoring and continuous digitally mediated management that pays for home monitoring and hospital at home models. And that allows for care to be paid for across state lines. We cannot wait on these regulations, sir. Technology is not the bottleneck here. The technology is off the shelf at this point. And, and truth be told, we can develop these care models quickly. I think one of the, the silver linings um, and one of the positive things about the pandemic, what it revealed was that providers, doctors, their staff, hospital administrators, healthcare systems across the country can make great leaps in care model delivery. In fact, we went within a matter of a few weeks from delivering less than 5% virtual care to delivering over 90% virtual care. So that myth has been dispelled. It's not the doctors, it's not the hospitals, it's not the healthcare systems. When faced with the challenge, they can make the changes in, in lightning speed. So sir, we have to change the payment to allow the care models to be digitally enabled, virtually enabled, to be much more connected, continuous. This is the type of care we need and we need to change the care model from what's the matter with you to what matters to you. The last principle I wanna discuss with you, Mr. President, and, and again, thank you for your time. And this is so important, we must shift. And I know how difficult this is and I know how contentious the statement is and how challenging politically it's gonna to be to make this happen. But we must shift from a predominant fee-for-service payment and compensation model to a value-based and outcomes-based model that does not place barriers in the way of healthful and humanistic healthcare delivery. Mr. President, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people and in each discussion, the truth is that payment is the big butt of American healthcare, B-U-T. Every time we talk about an innovative reformation or transformation of healthcare delivery, something that will make healthcare better, more effective, uh, less costly, more value-based, more contextual, more convenient, more consumer patient-oriented, every time we get into that discussion, we run into the major roadblock of fee-for-service payment Every expert and leader I've interviewed recognizes that no payment or compensation model is perfect, and each one has its biases. But as Zico Manuel recently said to me, the current fee-for-service approach is insane, and it sets up an ethical dilemma for everyone involved. Healthcare is not a piecemeal endeavor, and that is exactly what the fee-for-service model promotes, a piecemeal medicine. Healthcare is not just transactional. It's relational. Healthcare is not episodic. It is longitudinal, continuous, connected, and it must be vertically integrated along the continuum of care. Fee-for-service payment promotes a disconnected, reactive, non-integrated approach to healthcare delivery, and it incents overutilization, which is not a good thing for people. Fee-for-service payment makes it difficult for healthcare systems that are attempting to become integrated delivery systems. It also places tremendous barriers for doctors and other healthcare providers, especially in primary care and preventive specialty care. 
it prevents them from really being able to provide the type of care they want to provide, the type of care you and I would want for ourselves and our family. And again, I just want to make one point. I know you know this, that I'm not talking about socialized medicine. Far from it. This is and can be a highly competitive free enterprise medical industry. It's actually making medical care more like every other industry. In other industries, in other domains of commerce, you pay for quality, okay? You pay for outcomes. Right now in healthcare, we just pay. Now, again, I realize that no payment model is perfect. And Mr. President, you have lots of healthcare economists and policy experts that have a lot of ideas about how to transition from fee-for-service to value-based. It's already happening, okay? It's happening in Hawaii. Uh, an experiment has been run around it already, and it's happening in Maryland. It's happening in, in our Medicare Advantage. And we know from that experience that it works. In Medicare Advantage versus fee-for-service Medicare, you get better outcomes at a lower cost. You get a better patient and consumer experience with much better benefits, again, at a lower cost. You get better care and better health. Medicare Advantage is increasingly taking over Medicare fee-for-service, and, and Mr. President, we should accelerate that movement. We can do it also, again, it's not socialized medicine. What's actually happening in the market now is that Medicare Advantage is becoming increasingly highly competitive because most insurance companies have insurance products in the Medicare Advantage space. So again, this is the exact opposite of socialized medicine, and that argument makes no sense whatsoever. I believe the Center for Medicare and Medicaid is moving in the right direction here. And Mr. President, anything you can do to support, encourage, promote, advance, and accelerate that movement towards value-based payment, be it in MA or in other areas, that would be the right thing to do. I would suggest that, that CMS and CMMI sponsor more primary care capitation payment pilots, study these pilots, improve upon them, and spread them quickly. I don't believe we have five to 10 years. I think we have to move much, much quicker than that. And we can, we can. Again, the pandemic has proven to us that when faced with a problem or a challenge, we can actually move in a time frame of days to weeks rather than years or decades. You know, another great shift I'll point out is, Mr. President, is the VPCI programs. These are the bundled payment uh, care initiative programs that CMMI has been deploying in which surgical episodes are bundled and payment is bungle bundled. It includes preoperative, postoperative episodes, as well as the surgery itself. Um, and there's a discussion right now from CMS that these bundles could include more than just procedures. It's a major step in the right direction. We need to advance on that as quickly and as aggressively we can. It's the right thing to do for patients to make sure that we're holding providers accountable for not, not just what happens in the operating room, which is obviously critically important, but to make sure that patients are taken care of before the procedures and after procedures. Those of us in healthcare know how critically important and how dangerous those transition moments can be, how much technical logistic communication coordination is required. It's a great move towards more value-based payment and value-based care. So Mr. President, we could go into much more details, but those, those are the major policy issues, principles I, I wanted to discuss with you today. It's not a comprehensive list. We didn't even have a chance to touch upon the rising cost of medications, which by the way, are outpacing every other cost in healthcare. They're making up a considerable percentage of the total cost of care. In fact, I just saw some data that shows the cost for medications are now as great as the cost for hospitalizations in the Medicare program. This is unprecedented and it's unsustainable and something must be done about it. Numerous issues exist also around patient and consumer advocacy, uh, the need to make 
prices in healthcare more transparent, more readily available, and more understandable to patients and their families, to make sure that you're not hit with surprise bills, and to make sure that the entire process of, of getting billed and payment becomes so much less painful and frustrating. You know, uh, the experts I've spoken to over the past three or four years, many of them talk about the fact that you almost need a PhD to make sense of healthcare bills. It's funny, but it's not. It's an issue that impacts all of us, no matter who you are. And so these are not easy problems to solve, but we have the ability and we must address these as well. In fact, I was just talking to a group of chief financial officers from around the country, and, and this was the issue they raised. Um, they can make this happen. They have the expertise to make uh, billing and payment so much less frustrating, so much easier, so much more humane for patients and their families. So, so Mr. President, I, I know I've gone over time, and I truly appreciate you allowing me to, to speak with you and the vice president. Sir, when it comes to healthcare, the bottom line is that we, we must not just continue along the course we're on because it's unsustainable, it's unethical, it's not a healthful course. We must not seek to just improve the situation or make the system incrementally better. We must reorient our approach and transform the system through a thoughtful and systematic set of steps, but we must not let that take decades. Every other industry, every other industry over the past few years has completely reframed itself. Finance, banking, communications, telecom, retail, travel, entertainment, manufacturing, all of them have reframed themselves and we must catch up in healthcare and reframe healthcare delivery in our country. It makes up literally, as you know, nearly 20% of our gross domestic product. And, and we must do this because each and every day in our country, people are suffering and dying unnecessarily in our healthcare system. The healthcare system has not changed. It's not adapted to the needs of Americans. Sir, I'll, I'll leave you with one last comment, which I'm lifting from a letter that uh, Senator Ted Kennedy wrote to President Obama during the legislative battle to pass the Affordable Care Act. And this was actually delivered after Kennedy's death, which is what he wanted. In that letter, he wrote, what we face is above all a moral issue. What's at stake are not just the details of policy, the fundamental principles of social justice and the very character of our country. Mr. President, and this is now me speaking, we cannot allow our current circumstances to define us or to restrain us. We cannot dawdle. We cannot allow fate to be determined by itself. We cannot allow the present to prevent us from creating a better future. We must reframe and redefine our understanding of healthcare and redesign and reorganize our approach. My hope is that we will make our decisions and our choices with wisdom, compassion, empathy, a deep sense of humanity, courage, and a commitment to improving the health for all American citizens and all people living in our country. Thank you, Mr. President. So friends and colleagues, I'm coming out of character. This has been the uh, 2020 presidential election Oval Office episode uh, on creating new healthcare. As I do every episode, I'd like to take a moment to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting those who are taking care of patients. I, and we truly appreciate you for what you do, and we recognize how critically important your work is for individuals, families, communities in our country. Finally, I, I have a couple of requests in this episode. First, 
please let me know what you thought about this episode and what your major principles would be. And, and second, if you found value in this, in this podcast, please share it with your colleagues. I've heard from so many of you how valuable you find these episodes. And if that's the case, then it would be important to share and spread the word around reframing and creating new healthcare. And a little bit tongue in cheek, but uh, if any of you actually know POTUS or the VP, please share this podcast with them and the book on reframing healthcare. <laughs> this is Zeb Newworth on creating a new healthcare. Friends, until next time, be safe and be well.